Hey everyone, this uh, should have been out sooner, but my hard drive decided to die. I had finished up the video entirely and was ready to upload. And uh, along with a book <laughs> that I edited the majority of, that uh, now it's going to take a couple more months to get out. So, lovely. Anyway, um, on with today's episode. All industries and raw goods were nationalized, and the central planning superseded the powers of the labor unions. In theory, this was good to help rebuild nationwide, but it set the stage for the state to turn into a lumbering and inefficient giant that ended up being unable to turn and change fast enough with the rest of the world. Extreme left Bolsheviks believed the plan didn't go far enough, and small businesses shouldn't exist and should be nationalized as well, but Lenin believed they should only focus on the large corporations, especially ones internationally held, and once a small business got big enough, they could be nationalized as well, and the owners would be rewarded for their innovation. The left communists also decried and warned against the centralization of the nationalized property and demanded a more syndicalized version in a bottom-up approach, which would also help with the education of the peasants and how democracy works with workers' councils, but Lenin believed top-down was best, which would plague the nation for decades. Many left communists viewed the double representation as a seizure of power and non-democratic, including many prominent Marxists such as Rosa Luxemburg and the anarchist Russian author Peter Kropotkin. They viewed it as democratic in name only and saw the damage a top-down, even temporary government with weakened checks and balances could lead to. Things didn't go as well as one would have hoped with these temporary measures. In 1918, there was a famine, and Lenin blamed it on the kulaks, or middle-class freed peasants, that had gained land. He claimed they were hoarding grain and did a purge on them, and brutally suppressed and killed kulaks or sent them to the gulags, just as the prior czar had done to many of his fellow revolutionaries. This disincentivized people to grow more than they could eat for fear of being called a kulak themselves, which caused a drop in food production. This created a black market in the shortage of food, which Lenin decided should be shot. In 1919, he realized the anti-Kulak councils were also persecuting people who were not Kulaks and abolished them. Decades of violence had led him to view violence as necessary, which many left communists and socialists decried at the time, and started the Red Terror from 1918 to 1922 to force people in line with party thinking and demolish the old order of monarchists and the bourgeois. He held the Third International in 1919, and most of the rest of the labor unions and international communists and socialists refused to attend because of this brutal and undemocratic abuse of power. He went after anyone who had been well-to-do under the Tsar, even if they were now loyal to the revolution, and massacred organized religious leaders, mostly Orthodox, but also Catholics and Jewish synagogue leaders, as well as mosque leaders. Lenin had assumed the people and the peasants would be with him, but many resisted, especially when violence began being used in such a harsh manner, and they resisted, leading to more violence and attacks on them. While the Red Army held the greater regions of Russia, the White Army held out in distant territories and feared the national expansion of the Bolsheviks after seeing these brutal policies, even though many Bolsheviks hated and decried and struggled against it as well. Anyone who was not with the revolution was now a traitor and must be tried leading to a repetition of the French reign of terror under the Jacobins as he got more and more power-hungry using violence as his only hammer against nails. He did step in and protect the Jews at one point, claiming anti-Semitism was capitalist propaganda, though he still persecuted their religious leaders in a kill-the-Jew-save-the-man mindset colonizers did to their native populations. Mind you, churches at the time owned vast swaths of land they essentially hoarded to retain power, which is why they were also hated 
nearly as much as the Lord's by Lenin. Remember that while this murder was awful, he justified that this would be temporary and still nothing compared to the violence of the Tsar, but he was fooling himself with the temporary and was setting a precedent that would plague most communist nations for the next century. Lenin was always a morally compromised man. Most Bolsheviks were pretty idealistic, not Lenin. He believed revolution wouldn't come unless you dove headfirst into utilitarianism, even if it compromised your stated values. Early on, a member of his spy ring before the revolution, who was considered top caliber at his job, ended up being accused of raping a party member. Most of the party members wanted him expelled because aren't we the good guys and isn't this what we're fighting for? But Lenin, showing his colors early on, refused to expel him because of his usefulness. He was also quick to backstab anyone who dared cross him and expelled people from the organization who disagreed with him for the slightest little things, causing a split of the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. After 1921, Lenin relaxed some of the socialist policies since the Kulak Purge had created famine, allowing small businesses and for people to sell food on the open market again without fear of being called a Kulak so long as they were taxed, and he reintroduced the wage system. He called the system state capitalism, and many on the left decried him as once again not living up to socialist values, but with all the violent centralization of power and famine, he wasn't living up to socialist values either, so this should have been the least of their complaints. He created work conscription where everyone from 16 to 50 were required to work and pushed a big electrification project to spread electricity to all. He then moved on to opening up trade with capitalist nations, hoping that letting them invest in the nation would create rivalries among the capitalist nations that would more quickly lead to their downfall, making them go to war with each other. An example being that he allowed America to privatize an oil field in Russia that Japan had been eyeing, creating a rivalry. At his 50th birthday, he was celebrated nationally, much to his embarrassment, and renowned socialist and intellectual thinkers visited him, including Bertrand Russell and H.G. Wells. His health began declining, and he was unable to run the affairs of the Politburo. He called for Stalin to be removed from the general secretary position and replaced with Trotsky, because while he believed violence was useful, he feared rightfully that Stalin viewed it less of a hammer and more of an automatic nail gun with a fascist-like action-for-action's-sake mindset. Sadly for all of the Soviet Union and many other communist nations later on, Stalin was consolidating his power in Lenin's absence, and Trotsky was pushed out. Lenin also became rightly nervous when he realized a cult of personality was forming around him, created mostly by Stalin. A viewer of the last video rightly pointed out to me that Stalin began calling the current system at the time Marxist-Leninism, which Lenin was horrified about because A, he didn't want the title associated with him, and B, this was just supposed to be temporary until things stabilized post-Civil War, similar to the Reconstruction era of the U.S. Civil War, where the troops stayed in the South to enforce black rights, and Lenin feared that without that kind of force in place, something similar to post-Reconstruction Jim Crow could come about. Upon completion of his takeover, Stalin cemented the term Marxist-Leninist and communism to actually mean Stalinism, which had little to do at all with Marx, Lenin, or communism of a single-party state with state communism and whatever he decided it was as long as he felt like it. Every new communist state that came to power under him had people appointed by him who were just like him, if they wanted any support. Mao, who was helped put in place by him, then had his own Marxist-Leninist Maoism, or just Maoism for short, and put people like Pol Pot into power. As of this date, there are only four nations listed as Marxist-Leninist, though three are debatable. The People's Republic of China, Cuba, Laos, and Vietnam. North Korea is its own weird blend of communism. Cuba could be 
better called Khrushchevism, which has a few elements, but not most, of Stalinism. Well, because of unique circumstances we will discuss, Vietnam got probably the closest to actual Marxist-Leninism or Ho Chi Minhism of any other nation, which is why after 40 years of constant war and 16 years of crippling embargo from even China, it has opened up trade with the West and allowed for international investment, just like under Lenin. Vietnam provided military support for Laos and is still heavily reliant on Vietnam for military protection. Pol Pot was ultimately taken down by the Vietnamese army after their own twisted psychotic version of Maoism and established a similar political system of their own in Cambodia where the Vietnamese army occupied until the end of the Cold War where they pulled out. This refusal to leave Cambodia after such a mass genocide was the pretense for the 16-year embargo of Vietnam, especially since China was angry Vietnam had invaded and replaced their Maoist government with a different, much less brutal form of communism. You'll notice that countries like Venezuela and Bolivia are not listed as Marxist-Leninist because they are a multi-party system and have opposition parties. They just hold the majority in government. Whether their elections are free and fair is up for debate, though similar to how Hungary and Russia are only democracies if you squint really hard. Trotsky had been a leader of the party, creating the term continuous or sometimes permanent revolution. This referred to the idea that Russian communists saw all bourgeois revolutions as having stopped the continuation into the proletariat revolution as the new liberal governments got all the praise while leftists were pushed to the shadows and the margins even though they had been integral to the revolution working. Trotsky instead said that both the bourgeois and the proletariat revolution should happen at the same time, the bourgeois more strongly at first, but always having an organized proletariat revolution occurring at the same time, just more muted until they reached a level of education and infrastructure that they no longer needed the bourgeois. This is why Lenin allowed capitalism to continue to operate nonstop for his six years in power, just with very strong unions, as well as government control. Stalin came in and forcefully killed all capitalism, ending the continuous revolution before it started. Mao would go on to abuse this term to launch the Cultural Revolution that killed tens of millions and destroyed most of Chinese historic artifacts and architecture like the Taliban because he wasn't getting the attention he felt he deserved once the horribly failed Great Leap Forward ended and he was brushed aside. More on that later. In 1922, the official title of the USSR was named. Lenin was listed as the chairman of the new government, but Stalin actually ran things. Lenin died in 1924, ending his complicated life. He had managed to convert a violent, monarchistic nation of uneducated peasants with barely any rights to a somewhat less violent, mostly democratic nation with a people on their way to being educated and self-governing with more rights than they had ever had but he set the precedent for violence and anti-democratic action in spite of his stated ideals, which set the nation up for a nightmare of violence only seen before under the last czar's grandfather, and rights, freedom, and democracy crushed under and pushed aside. Had Trotsky taken over, Lenin's actions would have probably ended up a net good for his people. Instead, they got Stalin, and while Lenin wasn't directly involved with it, his actions set the stage for a net harm until after Stalin. It's crazy how both Jacobins in the French Revolution and the USSR had the most egalitarian constitutions written up and ready to go, but thanks to the fog of war and enemies, they put them on hold until they had taken care of their enemies of the old order and outside attackers from the established world powers. And then they got so purge crazy, these egalitarian constitutions never came into law. 
Would they have survived as nations without putting out the constitutions? Who knows? The anarchist movements sure didn't when they tried to go purely egalitarian. It's just interesting to see the parallels between the two revolutions, one converting a bloody oppressive monarchy into a war-torn republic for the first time, and one converting a bloody oppressive monarchy into a war-torn socialist nation. Those were nearly a hundred years apart, but the Jacobin fear kept France and the rest of Europe a monarchy, preventing them from firmly settling into a democratic republic, and the Red Terror and the Soviet Union kept much of the world scared and ignorant of socialism and ignorant of anarchism for another century. To be honest, it's really hard to discover the truth about socialism, communism, and anarchism. Both the capitalists and the communists use propaganda, each biased in favor of their side and very uncharitable to the other side, often not representing them or their arguments as the other side sees it. Pretty much always a straw man. If I have said anything that you can debunk, please let me know, and if it's dramatic enough, I will upload a new video to cover it. So as always, thank you all for watching this as a video or listening to this as a podcast, which I'm sure was completely uncontroversial to anyone, especially to the YouTube monetization team. So if you found this useful, please donate to my Patreon. Just a reminder that I'm Anubis2814 on YouTube, and I have almost 700 videos on my channel that I've made over the past 11 years on religion, science, psychology, and politics. Please go check them out, and if your site has the option, like, rate, review, and comment. A special thanks goes out to Kendall Copperberg, Ogrel, Elias Garcia Guevara, and Joe Taylor for their $10 or more Wapawet level donations. I'm always humbled by the fact that they find my work worth funding and worth driving me forward. Thank you all. Please consider donating to my work if you can, and thank you all for listening.